Hello, listeners, and welcome to the newest installment of Record Search and Rescue. And this is the podcast where the chatter is about collections, archives, and things people wrote down oh so long ago. I'm your host, Madeline Bognar, and today we are going to be talking about, about one of the most iconic brands in the world, and we're going to be telling the story of a passionate, remarkable woman who would not compromise on her principles to fulfill her dreams. And of course, I'm talking about Coco Chanel. So this episode was completely written by my co-writer and colleague from Ryerson, Jennifer Gray. So Jen was inspired to write this episode and share the history of this magnificent woman um, and the fashion house. Uh, she worked with Chanel during the holiday season. So as a Chanel representative, uh, they were thoroughly trained in the history of each scent its composition, uh, its inspiration, as well as the story of Chanel herself. So that's like really intense. Um, first-hand knowledge. Uh, she was thoroughly impressed with how the company is structured, um, and it's structured around its history, consistently making callbacks to Chanel's personality, style, and ambition. And more importantly, the company has had a tremendous impact um, in the art world, and in fashion, obviously, they've made it their mandate to represent the resilience of the Parisian people and to preserve the intricate artwork used in design perfume bottles, handbags, and suits. So if you like this episode, uh, make sure to let us know by reviewing the podcast on your streaming platform of choice. Um, this includes CastBox, um, Podbean, things like that. This helps to share the podcast, generate new interests in listeners to the show, um, and just generally makes me feel great. <laughs> so lastly, the podcast uh, Patreon page has been updated with uh, some of the first exclusive bonus material content, and this is available only to Patreon subscribers. So if you'd like to see more episodes of Record, Record Search and Rescue, uh, consider supporting our podcast on Patreon. And yeah, that's what's up. So now that my shameless attempt at money grabbing is complete, let's begin. Uh, here we go with our favorite part, and that's the jingle. So Chanel is an iconic global brand, and Chanel is a symbol in many areas of popular culture. So it always finds inspiration for their designs in their history. Sharing archival history and records um, can be difficult from a researcher's perspective, uh, especially for like a fashion house, so it can be hard to look into. Um, so there's a whole canon of literature written on Coco herself and her impact on the fashion world and the world in general. An internet search for Chanel archives doesn't really yield a lot of results. So, so how are we going to do this episode? One resource discovered uh, was this microsite branched off the Chanel flagship site, and it's called Inside Chanel. So this, this microsite, quote-unquote, it was launched in 2012 by Chanel, and it was a destination for carefully curated videos 
dedicated to a series um, of videos about Coco herself. So the brand's history is also included in that, and this has product information and much more. Uh, by making their history more accessible, Chanel head honchos believe that this particular microsite uh, quote-unquote reaffirms Chanel's values and helps to form emerging markets. And this is to share Chanel with the people who have limited access for whatever the reason. Um, this was shared on the Facebook page for Record Search and Rescue if you wanted to take a look at that as well. So anyways, inside Chanel is divided into two sections. So first there's a timeline of Chanel's history, um, the house, like the, the brand's history, and second there's a series of short films on topics such as Marilyn Monroe and the Chanel Number no. 5 perfume. Um, she famously said she only sleeps in Chanel Number no. 5. Very scandalous. Um, so there's also the grammar of Chanel to Coco's influence on cinema and lots of cool stuff like that. So in total, there are 28 videos that are available uh, and there's no plan on stopping anytime soon. So the most recent film, Gabrielle, Chanel, and the Cinema, was dropped on April 24th. So it's real recent. It's real recent, guys. Um, the information disseminated in each film is collected through Chanel images from art collections around the world, such as Getty or George Eastman House, or archives of other artists, such as uh, Edward J. Moybridge, Ed Weird, <laughs> as we like to refer to him. Um, anyways, the videos and trailers are also released on the Inside Chanel website, sometimes with directors such as Sofia Coppola sitting in that director's chair. So that's very fun and prestigious. So a lot of the information shared in today's episode is going to be from these videos. Uh, I seriously recommend checking them out if you have the time. And, you know, if you're still in lockdown, why not? Um, but you can also just stay here for a listen. Please do. Um, yeah, so we're going to get started. Um, so on August 19th in 1883, under a blazing Leo sun in Saumur, France, Gabrielle Chanel was born. Uh, so she was born to a lower class family. Gabrielle's father was a traveling peddler, with her mother being uh, a laundress. So she, she did laundry. Uh, unfortunately, her mother passed away uh, at the tender age of, age of 32, and she was exhausted from life. And you know what? Same. Um, but anyways, after her mother's demise, her father abandoned her along with her four siblings, sending all three daughters into an orphanage uh, in a convent, convent named Obazine. So Gabrielle and her siblings never saw their father again. She often dreamt he had left for business in America and would one day return. During their seven years at, at the convent, she, she kept this dream alive. So her time at Obazine came became a huge inspiration and many aspects of life at the convent are found in her designs um, which later became iconic so life in the convent created a fascination with romanticism and purity a taste for black and white um, and gold colored gems gold and colored gems sorry about that 
So as a young woman, Gabrielle spent her days sewing and her nights singing in a local cabaret. And one of her favorite songs was Who Has Seen Coco? Performing it so often that she got the nickname. So as an orphan, she pretended that this was a nickname bestowed by a loving father. And as a young woman, she referred to ride side saddle like other women of the time. She preferred garments with with more boyish silhouettes rather than the restricted corsets and dresses that were like creating that hourglass extreme shape. So Gabrielle Chanel was a rebel at heart and she she really desired freedom for herself and other women and she wanted and she transformed that rebellion into art and fashion was her medium. So in 1910, Gabrielle opened her first store in Paris called Chanel Mode. And this was a hat store. Or a, I think, a, what, what's the word? A milliner's? I've been to a milliner's. I have a posh hat that I'm very pleased with. But anyways. Um, so, anyways, so the hat store, it showcased the new style that she had sort of come up with. Her designs were simpler and lighter. They weren't flowery, like they didn't have bouquets of flowers on top of them or mini flying birds. Uh, Her first clients were working girls, upper society women, and the rest eventually just sort of flocked to her. Um, Her chic designs established her reputation with popular French actresses favoring her designs. And eventually they inspired shops all over Paris. So in 1913, Gabrielle opened a new boutique in Deauville, introducing a new sportswear collection made of jersey fabric. So if you're not familiar with with jersey fabric, it's that sort of like stretchy kind of like that sort of stretchy wrap dress material that they have. Anyways, um, it's a good time. Sort of like a like a t-shirt, sport t-shirt material. Um, so this was an immediate success. Uh, Jersey fabric had been more commonly used in men's clothing previously. So for Chanel, Jersey had many benefits with like many of them contributing to her success. So it was inexpensive. Uh, it was still a good quality that she continued to use it in designs even after making it in the big time. So, moreover, uh, it also draped well, and it suited the style silhouettes of her designs. So, by the end of the 1910s, Chanel opened two more additional boutiques, and this time both shops were at the Houses of Couture Clothing, and those are located in Biarritz and uh, 31 Rue de Cambon in Paris. So, the Cambon location still stands today, and it will be come it was going to become the epicenter for everything Chanel. Anyways, in 1920, the woman born Gabrielle Chanel, nicknamed Coco, became Mademoiselle because women had finally earned the right to wear comfortable, casual yet chic clothing. So take a moment um to gather up your thoughts and jam to a little bit of a jingle. <laughs> Thank you. 
exciting beginning to her career, her life. Well, an intense beginning to her life with the whole father thing. Anyways, in 1921, Mademoiselle Chanel unveiled her first fragrance, and this was Chanel number no. five. So it was created by perfumier Ernest Beau, a former perfumier for the Russian Tsars. Um, so I don't know. I, I had just finished watching uh, the Last Tsars, and they have a lot of like, uh, they, like it's dramatized version of the the story. Uh, of Nicholas and they have a lot of like archival footage and photos as well so fun little side note there anywho um so yeah so he was a former perfumer perfume for them um and this Chanel number no. five was created to be a woman's perfume with a woman's scent and that is you know just says it all, doesn't it? So Mademoiselle Chanel believed that a woman's scent was just as important as her style and should be applied wherever she desires a kiss. So I guess that's why you, you do the whole, the neck and uh, temples and stuff like that. I, I'm like touching my neck. You can't see me. It's fine. Um, <laughs> more importantly, uh, the Mademoiselle, she wanted an artificial scent, something composed, um, created and combined, something that had been structured. So, recruited for this task, Bo traveled the world for inspiration, and he traveled as far as the Arctic Circle. Upon his return, he created a bouquet of over 80 scents for her to sample. So, Bo transforms scents by using aldehydes, um, which is a synthetic component that naturally enhances the natural essence presence present within a regular scent. So, if anyone has ever cut strawberries and added lemon after or added salt to a dish, this is exact, This is the function that an aldehyde performs. Um, that's why they always say, like on MasterChef, you go to salt and pepper and get those aldehydes in to really enhance the situation. Um, that's just me saying this. Not perfumery. <laughs> Not perfumes around the world. So when presented with samples, Mademoiselle... She chose the fifth sample presented and decided to simply name it Chanel Number no. 5. So that's why it's called that, in case you're wondering. Um, and there are some other numbered perfumes. But, um, yeah, anyway, so this was the fifth sample that I gave her. So for the first time ever, a scent is created that is a combination of essences. So just like her fashion designs, um, the perfume was packaged in a clear vial, emphasizing minimal lines and transparency, and the stopper was cut like a diamond, um, and it was inspired and modeled by the Place Vendôme in Paris. So, there you go. I always love, like, looking at all the fancy perfume bottles when I was, like, a little girl. Um, I, I still like a, a good design on a perfume bottle, right, right about now. Um, so the first number five scent was a parf parfum. So I know that the terms parfum, perfume, parfum, and perfume are often used interchangeably. So we've got perfume, perfume, and parfum. Uh, Unfortunately, these scents are distinguished from each other by the concentration 
of raw materials. Um, so the Chanel Number no. Five perfume is considered an investment by both. You you use it sparingly because it is more concentrated. Um, so you put it in drops, apply it on sensory and pressure points, um, and five key flowers are present in Chanel Number no. Five scent, um, and they are May Rose, Grass Jasmine, Tuberose, Iris, and Geranium Rose. <laughs> I'm doing my little French accent. Uh, May Rose is often called Turkish Rose, and it symbolizes feminine, femininity and love. So it's only harvested in um, the grass region of France. These buds are hand-picked at first harvest in May. So to make one kilogram of May Rose absolute, 300,000 roses are necessary, making this solution four times more expensive than other rose scents. So also harvested in grass is is jasmine, which uh, Chanel pro produces 25 tons of each year to make number five, the perfume. In fact, one third of the world's jasmine supply is used by Chanel, since approximately six million followers are required flowers, not followers, is this Instagram? Um, six million flowers are required to make one kilogram of jasmine absolute. So this absolute is 17 times, that's right folks, 17 times more expensive than other jasmine types. So if you're wondering why your perfume bottle is so dang expensive, um, that's why. To ensure the highest quality and the freshest ingredients, Chanel owns all stages of their production process. Uh, this is from flower picking to raw material processing. So Chanel number no. five perfume <laughs> I'm trying to be like very clear when I say parfum, not parfum or perfume. Um, and this contains 20 to 30% raw materials, making the scent more concentrated, yet soft. An eau de parfum is a step down from the parfum because it contains 15 to 25% le uh, raw materials. Um, so instead of 20 to 30, 15 to 25. So just a, a wee step down. Um, and that makes it a longer lasting scent. Uh, eau de toilettes are milder subtle scents because they contain 10 to 15 percent raw materials uh, and those are suited for everyday use. Um, so when you are shopping for a, a, a scent uh, this is how you're gonna see the different grades of how intense this the scent is going to be. Really interesting stuff. Um, so what is different about Chanel than any other perfume house is that each Chanel number no. five scent concentration is a slightly different recipe. So no two perfumes ever smell exactly the same. Uh, Chanel doesn't believe in diluting their product with water or more alcohol to create more subtle versions. Um, the fragrance recipe is slightly altered to create a more subtle scent. Um, heavy and sexy scent or fresh and light. And this is seen as the vast array of Chanel number no. five products that are available. Um, so after World War II, Chanel number no. five became the best selling perfume in the world. Uh, soldiers lined up outside to buy perfume and send it back to their wives and girlfriends at home. I mean, 
Paris is getting like the shit kicked out of it. People were lining up for perfume or had gotten the shit kicked out of it. Let me say, uh, in 1952. So this was the height of her fame. The sex icon, Marilyn Monroe was quoted saying the only thing she wears to bed is a few drops of Chanel number no. five. So like I said before, and it was, this was the first, well, I said the quote before, but this was the first time a fragrance was ever uh, advertised by a naked Marilyn Monroe. So, how exciting. Um, and another first uh, is that Chanel Number no. 5 was the first fragrance ever advertised during Super Bowl Sunday, the holiest of days. So the fragrance was also the subject of a series by Andy Warhol in 1959. So this was presented by the MoMA in New York City. All of these appearances and firsts helped to contribute to establishing the scent uh, and Chanel brand as an icon of the 20th century. So throughout the rest of the 20s and 30s, Mademoiselle Chanel experienced a lot of success due to innovative designs and all untraditional fabrics. In 1924, she created and launched her first makeup line, including lipsticks and face powders. In the same year, she discovered tweed. Iconic. And this inspired her to create suits for women. In 1927, she created her first skincare line. And at the peak of her fame in 1935, Mademoiselle Chanel owned five boutiques, on Rue Cambon in Paris and employed over 4,000 people. Um, it was her creation in 1926, which was dubbed by Mademoiselle as the Little Black Dress or the LBD for us knowledgeable folk, and this revolutionized fashion. Like, it's still, I, I mean, anyways, for the first time, um, like, ever, women's ankles were visible since the hemlines were raised to ankle or knee height. Um, there was a daring simplicity of the LBDs, uh, and they freed women from corsets. Uh, its new shape and color, inspired by the nuns of Aubazine, the little black dress made a huge impact on fashion critics um, at the time that the American magazine outlet Vogue likened it to the Ford automobile, which is also very innovative at the time. My mother actually went to the Sacre Coeur in Montreal and <laughs> she always made fun of um, Louis Vuitton luggage and Oxford style like high heels because she said they looked like something that the nuns would wear. Well, that was never a good thing, so it's, it's always really funny to like compare that to this. Um, Anyways, uh, so while her designs, uh, they made over women all over the world, Mademoiselle Chanel also took a new look. She believed that before liberating women, she had to liberate herself. So she cut her hair into a bob and bronzed her skin. Very fancy. So unfortunately, the outbreak of the Second World War in 1939 led Mademoiselle Chanel to close her salons on 31 Rue Cambon, all except for one. Um, after all, Chanel perfume and accessories were still in high demand by American GIs and almost anyone else who could like get their hands on them. Um, so she stayed in Paris during the war and 
throughout the German occupation. Recently, this time in her life has come under much scrutiny in the public eye. Uh, entertainment outlets such as television series, books, and movies um, have have talked about this particular chunk of time. Uh, there are many allegations, and I say allegations because I haven't really looked into it myself. Um, we're just sort of talking about her, and it is, it's harder to find records on this particular topic. Um, I would open a whole new can of worms, y'all. So, the idea, the, the crux of the issue here uh, is that during the German occupation of Paris, that Mademoiselle Chanel was in a romantic relationship with a Nazi officer. Um, while there are camps that use this information to portray her as a traitor, other camps believe she may have been operating under the directions of a government agency and acting as a spy. Um, just like Julia Child. Uh, anyways, I, I'll leave this for you to explore more um, in your own time, although there's numerous sources available for you to make your own decision. So, mull this over for a hot minute, and I'm gonna give you a little jingle break, but I just wanted to say that if you do find anything or you want to share your opinions, feel free to share them on the Facebook page and, and start a lively discussion, because you just gotta love it, right? Alright, take a second, think about Chanel and, and the Nazis, and I'm gonna give you a jingle break. a second to think about about life and and love and Chanel um, we're going to move on to after World War II so after the second world war the new look quote unquote that's what it's called uh, was very very extremely popular for those who are not familiar with the style um, just think of how a 1950s housewife dressed so dresses were once again designed by men, uh, not by people who actually wore them. So dresses accentuated tiny waists made by corsets, lifted bosoms with full and sometimes lined skirts. Uh, created by Dior, Chanel felt that these designs were a huge step backwards. Uh, Christian Dior was like very focused on that, that hourglass silhouette. Um, there have been... Uh, I know there was a, an exhibition at the ROM that I went to that had a lot of Dior's creations, and um, yeah, it was really interesting to see. So uh, I know that I was also traveling, so check that out um, online. I can I can also try to link it to the Facebook page. But anyways, Chanel didn't like it. <laughs> she was like, "What have I? I've already accomplished so much, and yet, I'm like, here we are, um, back again." So, to re-enter the fashion world uh, was not going to be easy, and she knew this. So, she would have to secure funds or find investors and find new employees who could produce the standard of work that was required and source the fabric, and she just did it. Um, her new collection debuted in 1953, and it shook the fashion world yet again. 
1954, at the age of 71, Mademoiselle Chanel held the grand reopening of her couture house. Uh, in a true Chanel style, she chose her lucky number five for the first runway show in February of 1954. So the French media tore her apart, but the world would soon catch on. Don't worry, don't fret, don't get too stressed out about the whole situation. So one of the reasons for this new respect and success was the creation of the 2.55 quilted handbag in February 1955. So uh, it was named after its creation date for the first time a woman could use a handbag hands-free. <gasps> what? Um, so it was adorably chic and simple. The bag has a shoulder strap that somehow manages to simultaneously be strong yet light. The handbag itself was inspired by men's military satchels. Who knew? An item used by most military personnel. Um, yeah, it has that long strap. And there you go. Uh, it became essential during the war, and Mademoiselle Chanel used this idea as a model and refashioned a purse from an old favorite jersey fabric. Um, and she lined it with Brodka. And the exterior of the bag was sewn in a quilted black diamond pattern, and this was for improved durability and comfort. The bag is now iconic, and it's a must-have item for many women who dream of purses as fabulous as this. <laughs> this is where Jen has decided to share that she is much too poor to get <laughs> one of these. Now, I have my one fancy purse it's a coach purse it's like a um it also has a shoulder strap but yeah I, I i didn't even think about trying to afford a chanel bag so we're both so poor um by 1956 mademoiselle chanel was enjoying her newfound respect who, who wouldn't much do this was much due to the overwhelming success and popularity of the chanel suit um, and y'all know this suit. It was on The Simpsons, right? Right. So, originally introduced in her Paris couture houses in 1925, the first suits were made with tweed. Uh, and this was discovered by Chanel when her current beau at the time, the Duke of Westminster, wore it hunting in Scotland. So, the suit was iconic at this point. Uh, and again, it's, uh, well... It's inspired again by military uniforms. So it's adorned with braided tweed pockets, uh, jeweled or embossed gold buttons, and the suit was becoming increasingly popular and known for its unique fit. So almost like every tweed jacket I've ever seen is inspired by a Chanel suit. Just FYI, just a personal note there. Um, anyway, so to ensure that the e that each blazer sits properly, uh, each blazer has a hidden gold chain sewn into the inside hem of the jacket. And this provides the jacket structure and allows it to drape a woman's figure. So in, in, this is instead of shaping and confining it. It just allows gals to be gals. Um, so this design proved instrumental in Chanel's comeback, especially in the 1960s, when her iconic suit saturated modern culture. And it was worn by celebrities such as Marlene De Marlena Dietrich, Jane Fonda, Jackie Kennedy, Bridget Bardo, Grace Kelly, Ingrid Bergman, and the inimitable Elizabeth Taylor. So the Chanel suit was now a status symbol. It's a representative of a new generation of women. 
Um, so with endless strands of pearls draped around her neck. An 80-year-old Mademoiselle Gabrielle Chanel still lived for her work. Uh, only a few blocks away from 31 Rue Cambon, Mademoiselle Chanel kept an apartment in the Ritz Hotel, like a Wes Anderson movie, where she slept. That's about it. She didn't do much else there. She maintained long days, and she would leave the Ritz early in the morning to walk to her stores and her second apartment, her personal residence, which was underneath the stores on, on Rue Campbell. So each morning, a porter from the Ritz telephoned 31 Rue Campbell to inform the staff of Mademoiselle's impending arrival. Uh, and to prepare for her arrival, an employee sprayed the staircase with her, of, to her private office with, what else? Chanel number five. Um, so on Sunday, January 10th in 1971, Mademoiselle Gabrielle Chanel passed away in her suite at the Hotel Ritz in Paris. Close friends announced her passing, and thousands turned out to her funeral. Many were paying respect by wearing their Chanel suits. So after her death, the house of Chanel was managed by several assistants. During this time, Chanel launched their ready-to-wear collection, and this increased worldwide distribution to the collection and just general accessibility. Uh, in 1983, Carl Lagerfeld was named artistic director for Chanel fashion. Um, so in this role, Lagerfeld creates styles for the Haute Couture collection, the ready-to-wear collection. And um, while he was artistic director, Lagerfeld had launched many popular fragrances such as Allure, Coco Mademoiselle, uh, Coco, Chance, and Bleu de Chanel, not to mention the luxury watch line launched in 1987. Um, Carl Lagerfeld is an interesting character. If you look up quotes of, like, just general things he said, yeah, he'll make you think. Uh, I don't know, you know, he, he, you don't know if you love him or hate him, but he was a good designer. Um, as a person, though, it's hard to tell, <laughs> at least for me. Um... So yeah, that's what's up. Uh, so anyways, Lagerfeld, he found his inspiration in Chanel's history. Um, thankfully, he kept very close to that and kept very close to the historical designs uh, for his own patterns. So for example, it was his idea to create the linked CC logo. And that's on so many, like it's very iconic. Um, it adorns many items since... Uh, such as the 2.55 bag that we spoke about. And by we, I of course mean me. Um, so in the last 20 years, Chanel has been honored with various art exhibitions on a global scale. That's where we talk about collections again. Uh, <laughs> of exhibitions at the, at the Met. So that's the Metropolitan Museum of Art. Um, there's also... There were also ones at the Pushkin State Museum of Fine Arts in Moscow, the Museum of Contemporary Art in Shanghai, the National Art Museum of China and Beijing, and even traveling exhibits which visited Hong Kong, Tokyo, New York, all the big places. So most recently in the past two years, Chanel uh, is working exclusively in collaboration with Palais Galleria in Paris, the Paris City Museum. Um, it's a fun place. I've been. It's a good time. Uh, and they want to open a new gallery for permanent collections to be called the Gabrielle Chanel Rooms, which sounds 
divine. And once lockdown is up and I'm able to travel outside of Belgium, I'm going to be seeing if I can see that and check out Paris one more time. I went there for my honeymoon. Well, for part of my honeymoon. But anyways, stop talking about yourself, Maddie. Um, the project for the Gabrielle Chanel rooms is led by Olivier Sayard, who he intends to fill the space with a history of fashion from the 18th century to the present day. Uh, this addition will make Palais Galleria the only permanent fashion collection in Paris. So, which is a little surprising, in my opinion. But, anyways, the last fashion permanent fashion collection I went to was the Silk, silk and, and Lace Museum or Fashion Lace Museum, that's what it is, in, in Brussels. La Dentelle. It was actually really cool. Um, so the partnership between the two institutions is an attempt to make collections more accessible. Um, but they also want to represent Chanel's commitment to Paris and their ongoing attempt to breathe life back into the history of fashion. So it's really exciting and... Um, you know, I, I know who's showing up there when, when it first opens. Uh, one of the benefits of living in Belgium is that Paris is under two hours away on the, on the high-speed train. Anyways, um, sorry, I'm kind of rubbing it in, aren't I? Oh, well. Uh, that's the end of our episode today. Um, thank you so much to Jen Gray for doing all the research and writing. <laughs> for content for this episode um it's been really great because i've been really lazy uh and remember you can get access to links and info on the facebook page just look up record search and rescue feel free to email us as well at record search and rescue at gmail.com and uh when remember when life gives you lemons in paris they're called citron <laughs>